This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Uh, I, was in, I was in Florida last week. It was not a birding trip, surprisingly enough, at least not intentionally. I didn't even bring my camera. I did have my binoculars on me, obviously. I'm not a heathen. I figured I would just, you know, chill by the pool with my family, you know, peep some birds that are flying over, spend a day at Disney, maybe pick up a few things. I, had, I actually had a swallow-tailed kite fly over the France Pavilion of Epcot's World Showcase, which either took me out of the immersive experience that they're sort of going for there, or, and this is an explanation I prefer, uh, it was the first record of Swallowtailed Kite for the Western Palearctic. Given that it's a fantasy world anyway, I think that's fair, right? Anyway, Florida might be the one state where you can have a totally satisfying birding experience without actually actively going birding. There are birds everywhere, and most of them are large and dramatic. But I was called out of my poolside stupor by the report of a red-legged thrush a couple of hours away. And I'll have more to say about that in the Rare Bird Focus later in the show. But I, I had one free day left. I convinced the family that I wouldn't be gone that long. Bonus, there was a Bahama Mockingbird at the same park and a Key West Quail Dove potentially another hour down the road. That's three possible ABA lifers. That is a haul I could not turn down. So early, early Friday morning, I shot down to Lantana, Lantana Nature Park in Lantana, Florida, where the thrush and the mockingbird were seen the day before. I picked up the mockingbird pretty easily. It's a great bird. It's really nice to have an ABA Code 4 singing in the parking lot, not long after you get out of the car. Uh, it was a real deal lifer for me in addition to being an ABA lifer, so that made the trip worth it on its own, even if I probably wouldn't have gone so far if that was the only thing I was going for. Anyway, long story short, I did not see the thrush. It was a one-day wonder. I did see big year birders Neil Hayward and John Weigel, as well as a couple friends from my home state of North Carolina. It's, it's wild who you see at these sorts of things. I gave them my number if the thrush returned, and I headed south to look for that quail dove, which if you know anything about quail doves, you know that they are total jerks. Uh, I did not see it, but I can add my name to the list of people with a story that centers around spending way, way too much time on a sandy Florida barrier island looking for that dumb bird. It turns out, and, and this is true for the thrush and the dove, Florida is a really rough place to search for sort of ground-dwelling leaf thrashing type birds because there are so many of those invasive brown and oly lizards everywhere so that every dry leaf sound ends up being one of them. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a fun day, even if I went one for three. Uh, dip stories are always worth having in your back pocket anyway. I swear, they're, they're often more fun than the triumphant discovery of the bird. Everyone likes a good failure story. Uh, so next time, Florida. On the show today, tis the season for birds and bird walks, and I have some thoughts about how you can lead your own bird walk and why you absolutely should, even if you consider yourself a novice birder. That is at the end of the program. But first... 
Ken Kaufman is one of the most well-known birders in North America. He's a speaker and an artist and an author as well. He has a new book about spring migration, out just in time to get excited about spring migration. It's called A Season on the Wind Inside the World of Spring Migration. And Ken is with me to talk about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of April 2019. Finally, the birds are arriving, and with them, the rarities we enjoy in this part of the program. We've got some good ones to include this time around. Let's start with the one I mentioned earlier in the episode, the ABA area's second record of red-legged thrush turned up in Palm Beach County, Florida. It was, unfortunately for me, a one-day wonder, but several people got to see it on that one day, which is not something that could be said about the ABA's first record of this species in 2010 which was also on the Atlantic coast of Florida. Red-legged thrush is one of the robin-like turtus thrushes and is widespread in the Bahamas and much of the Caribbean. It's surprising, given the relative penchant of turtus thrushes to wander and the nearness of the Bahamas, that this was only the second record of the species in the ABA area. Down in Texas, a black-vented oriole in Nueces County is the ABA area's eighth or so record, with most of those records coming from Texas. This wasn't the only fun find in the Lone Star State. There was a slate-throated red start seen at Big Bend National Park. In Nevada, a white wagtail in Clark County is a nice bird. This looks to be of the Ocularis subspecies, which is the widespread East Asian subspecies of this extremely wide-ranging and extremely variable Old World songbird. These Ocularis birds represent the majority of North American records. And there's one first record to report, and it's a good one. A black-whiskered vireo was seen on Martha's Vineyard Island in Massachusetts. Interestingly enough, a black-whiskered vireo was seen last year in neighboring Rhode Island in spring, no less, but a little bit later in spring. Something for New England birders to consider when checking out their returning red-eyed vireos. This is just a little of the rare bird landscape for the period for all of your rare bird needs. Check out the ABA blog on Friday mornings. You can also join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group if you can't wait that long at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. When adult birders hear about the fun that today's teenage birders have on our young birder camps, we hear the same response over and over. Man, I wish they had birding camps when I was a kid. And now we do. You can relive the best of birding sleepover camp with the ABA in West Virginia over Memorial Day weekend, May 23rd through the 27th, 2019 with camp counselors, Jeff and Liz Gordon and me, I'll, I could be your camp counselor. And we also have special guest, Katie Fallon. She's the author of the book, Cerulean Blues, a personal search for a vanishing songbird. And we will be looking for that vanishing songbird because West Virginia is for warbler lovers. We'll seek and enjoy a treasure trove of beautiful warbler species, including those Cerulean Warblers, also Golden Wings, Swainson's Worm Eating Kentucky. The list goes on and on and on. All the fun of Sleepaway Camp and all the comfort adults expect. It's going to be a great time. You can get more information at aba.org travel. There are a handful of people in the birding world who probably don't need much introduction. My guest today is certainly one of them, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Ken Kaufman is one of North America's best-known birders. He's an author of many books and field guides, an artist, tour leader, photographer. If there's a thing that you can do in birding and an organization you can do it with, Ken has probably done it. Uh, He has a new book, A Season on the Wind, that just came out. It's the story of spring migration through the lens of that famous birding hotspot, McGee Marsh, on the south shore of Lake Erie, northwest Ohio. Ken, thanks for joining me. Congrats on the book. I really enjoyed it. 
Well, thanks, Nate. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and uh, uh, congrats uh, to you and to the American Birding Association on their 50th anniversary. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've only been around for a little bit of that 50th year, but uh, I'll take the congratulations. <laughs> well, you're, you're doing great work now, so. Oh, th- thanks, thanks. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people sort of think of spring migration as, as warbler time or even more sort of generally about neotropical migrants. And of course, you know, those spectacular birds and they do spectacular things. But as you write, you know, spring migration really starts as early as February with snow buntings and waterfowl and crows and eagles and sort of a slow build that you know reaches this crescendo in May. There's definitely a momentum to it and it really works well as a narrative. Was that part of the plan when you began writing this book or did it sort of fall into that pattern as you worked on it? Yeah, it's uh, you're right about the, the momentum building during the spring and it being a long season. Um, I'd been thinking for a long time about writing a book on spring migration uh, most of my life, I've done a lot of traveling. So in the course of a spring, I might be in you know, California and then southern Mexico and then Florida and wind up in Alaska in June where things are still migrating and just seeing yeah. these little fragments of the movement. I, I'd say, oh, was, I, I should write something about this. But <laughs> I finally decided it would work better to just focus on um, on one spot and try to follow the season there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this book reads, you know, very much like sort of a, a love letter to Northwest Ohio. You spend a little time, especially early on, kind of answering the why Ohio question. I mean, it, the answer is pretty self-evident now, of course. But at the time when you got there from Arizona, you know, arguably one of the finest birding destinations in the country, did it take some time for Ohio to, to grow on you? Um, yeah, I mean, the first, uh, the first February <laughs> was a little bit rough, uh, just, you know, it's like, Hey, there's no butterflies. There's no, there's right. um, yeah, yeah. but the, um, yeah, just, just, um, after a few years here, uh, getting into the, the rhythm of the season and seeing the, the very first traces of, of northward migration in the middle of February, and and just the excitement that gradually builds up after that, um, I, I really did fall in love with the region. Yeah. You know, sort of my, spring migration is sort of funny in, in that way and that um, people a lot of times get super anxious about uh, – about you know getting those neotropic migrants here, there seems to be a lot of fits and starts. Uh, certainly, you know where I live as well. When the the Louisiana water thrushes come really early, and everyone's like, "Oh, migration's here! It's finally here!" And then it's you know several weeks before <laughs> more things come. Um, you know, it's nice to be able to sort of stop and appreciate these sort of the slow build and watch the sort of things that things change that you know maybe not aren't as obvious. Right, and, and I had to. Um... I had to teach myself to to do that because there is this this sort of uh, eagerness for the warblers to show up. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, especially, you know, being on the northern edge of Ohio and in the internet age, uh, we see you know, even on the <laughs> yeah. Ohio birds uh, listserv, uh, people are getting all sorts of things down in the southern part of the state weeks before they show up on the edge of Lake Erie. So yeah, you know, the the anticipation builds. Yeah, it's definitely a lesson in patience. I think sometimes <laughs> spring yeah. migration, especially, uh, it's like I know it's almost like um, you know the the blood system circulating in the in the body, like uh, the artery, you know, it comes in like pulses with the uh, with the heartbeat. And fall migration, and things are a lot more 
even, but, you know, spring is boom, 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 these pulses that come up with these different birds and you sort of have to, you sort of have to appreciate the pulses and then you have to wait for a while for the other ones. It's, yeah, it's, it takes a little while to get used to it. Every, every year, even, you know, I've been birding for years and every year it's like, oh, I guess I have to wait for, you know, the blue-headed vireos to get back and then the, and the gnat catchers and all that stuff. It's, uh, yeah, but it's, it's sort of like, uh, like, like rediscovery every year as these things mm-hmm. come back and, you know, things maybe I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, you know, we get into it's into May, and here's the full rush of warblers and things, and then suddenly there's a, there's a day when a bunch of catbirds had come back. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. catbirds. I remember those. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, I, I sort of compare it to uh, like listening to a favorite piece of music, and you mm-hmm. know maybe your favorite movements are the the latter yeah. part of the symphony, and you just have to you know wait for those to arrive, and in the meantime you savor the. Uh, the part of the symphony that you're listening to. You talk a little bit about, you know, Nexrad and radar ornithology and stuff as sort of a way for birders to kind of build that anticipation. Uh, but of course, there's there's the problem, as you mentioned, of that you never know exactly what birds are coming behind those, those radar pictures. Uh, do you think that that uh, is ultimately a good thing? Do you think it, we appreciate spring migration more uh, when we see these sort of maps that, that show up and show, you know, blooms of birds across the continent? I actually have mixed feelings about that. I mean, mm-hmm. I love the science of it. I'm, uh, I'm totally addicted to the science of, <laughs> of uh, bird migration. But then in some ways, I also love uh, mystery. And yeah. one, of the, one of the great things about bird migration is that it's this huge, huge phenomenon that's mostly invisible. Um, yeah. You know, actual visible migration is a, a fairly rare thing. Um, so we we've been sort of picking at uh, little clues and things uh, all along. And you know, one of the reasons, you know, when I when I decided I was going to write a um, a book about about spring migration, it really helped that I had moved to an area where uh, there was already a lot of information. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the Black Swan Bird Observatory has been doing this long-term research here, with banding you know seven days a week for more than you know twenty-five years. In, in spring and fall, they've got this complete record. So um, I came into it already having all this data, but even with all that, there are just so many uh, mysteries. And, yeah. and like you say, looking at the radar picture at night and, and wondering, okay, what are those birds <laughs> <laughs> moving overhead? Just part of the mystery. Yeah, I, I can recall some uh, situations where um, I was watching the radar one night before, and it was just you know beautiful. Those big blue donuts that look like the birds are you know just you know, coming in in huge numbers, and I was really excited. And I go out the next morning uh, to my local patch to see what was around, and it was just like wall to wall flickers, just like flickers everywhere, <laughs> which is great. I mean, flickers are amazing, but it's not you know the the reality and the anticipation don't always match up. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's good. I think uh, you know we're we're going to continue to learn more and more, but we're never going to get to the point where we totally understand everything. And I think that's a good thing. So McGee Marsh, or you know Crane Creek, as the kind of the old timers call it, are these birds out there that people are you get so excited about? Are they out there to be found all around the area, or is it just that it's easiest for people to see them at the boardwalk, or or is the abundance there legitimately special? Well, there are actually a lot of spots uh, along the edge of Lake Erie where um, where these numbers build up, and it's uh, it's uh, one of the great things about it is that you don't have to wait for fallout conditions. You don't have to wait yeah. for exhausted birds that have been knocked down by storms because they're coming north 
um, on a broad front. They get to the lake shore, and if it's near dawn, then they'll stop. Um, if they're out over the lake at first light, we know now from radar information that um, they'll actually climb up somewhat higher, like to look hmm. around and then turn around and come back to the uh, to the shoreline. So you get this this big concentration uh, wherever there are trees uh, right along the edge of Lake Erie. Yeah, McGee Marsh just happens to be like the most accessible uh, mm-hmm. area with this this boardwalk through the woods and the whole way to the parking lot. The trails that go into Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge next door through the woods. It's just um, it's it's the easiest place to see them. Uh, but the birds are all along the lakeshore, and um, there are at least half a dozen other spots that are just as good. The the story of McGee Marsh and how that specific site came to be is a really interesting one. And I really appreciate you putting the sort of history of that place in there and putting all that stuff in context. What I found most fascinating was that it was really a, uh, a stretch almost to convince Ohio, the Ohio Division of Wildlife to allow birders as opposed to, to hunters or other users of the, the landscape there to have something that is very special for birds. That was kind of a hard sell when it happened, wasn't it? Um. To, to some extent, yeah. I mean, birders were, uh, they were coming there. It's a, uh, it had been, uh, McGee Marsh had been a private duck hunting club before the, the state bought it. And it became a, a state wildlife area. And there was actually a little state park right on the beach. But the, um, the divisional wildlife was, was managing the area and uh, birders were coming there. But the, the idea of putting a boardwalk through um, took, uh, uh, took some convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sort of higher upset. The Division of Wildlife had to be convinced that it was their idea. <laughs> that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. The way it goes, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and the, the funding, funding to pay for building the boardwalk, um, it would have been tricky politically to take that out of the, uh, the, the funding for the Division of Wildlife because that mostly comes from hunting licenses and fishing licenses. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was actually a... Um, uh, a tax, uh, a state income tax checkoff box, the checkoff for wildlife that raised the money for building that in the first place. And it and it was successful that way. They they were able to able to raise that. I mean, it's a beautiful boardwalk. It's a long boardwalk. I, I mean, and and it feels like so natural in that area. I can't imagine birders before the boardwalk is there walking through that marsh on their own. I mean, that must have been really difficult. Well, it was, you know, the, the water level rises and falls. Right. And, um, yeah. So it's, uh, but a, a local uh, game warden named Laurel Van Camp had laid out the um, the actual trail through the woods mm-hmm. uh, back in the 1960s. And so it was an established uh, trail, but the problem was there were little side trails going right. off as, all through the woods. Happens, and, yeah. yeah, and destroying the habitat. So it was uh, Mark Shieldcastle originally had the idea of putting in a boardwalk following the course of the trail, mostly to protect the habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it turns out to be very helpful for the birders, but the yeah. the original intent was to uh, uh, save the habitat from being trampled. Yeah, one of those definitely fortuitous things that just kind of benefits everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciated how you documented the, the fight about the Camp Perry wind development project. I, I remember when that was going on and the, the efforts by Black Swamp Bird Observatory and American Bird Conservancy. Uh, and I was, I was really glad to see how it resolved. Um, dealing with those sort of big environmental issues is definitely a theme 
in a season on the wind. And it's hard not to consider those when you're thinking about migratory birds. It's you know probably irresponsible not to mention them. What did you learn about addressing those sort of big conservation issues and working through the system to get to that goal of ultimately, you know, scuttling that that wind development pro project? Well, it was educational for me, uh, even though I was uh, I was a spectator at least as much as I was a participant. Uh, mm-hmm. There were other people who were doing the, the heavy lifting, uh, uh, people from uh, American Bird uh, Conservancy, especially the late uh, Michael Hutchins, uh, just an amazing guy, an amazing conservationist, um, who sadly is, is no longer with us. But um, he was um, he really brought uh, great expertise. And they've got, you know, the American Bird Conservancy has their uh, a, good, a good legal team. And then here in the local area, Black Swan Bird Observatory had the, the local expertise, the local contacts. And this, um, the cooperation between a regional and a national, international organization, I think, was key in this uh, situation here. Mm-hmm. You know, migration is such a huge and sort of, you know, complex topic. And, you know, people kind of get it generally, but the specifics are sort of mysterious. One of the things that struck me was when you, you were writing about explaining to you know the wind developers there, you know, to us basic concepts, namely that these birds are, are migrating mostly at night, which was something that they didn't necessarily know. How do you take such a, a big concept like spring migration and sort of distill it into something uh, that works for the general public? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that for a long time. How I'm to sure. do the yeah, elevator sure. speech? Huh? Sure. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, the you make a good point there. Uh, there are some things that we take for granted that are not going to be obvious to to most people. So you have to really talk about the basics. That yeah, most of these uh, songbirds are migrating at night, and yeah, they may be up um, more than a thousand feet off the ground <laughs> uh, in the middle of the night. But they are taking off and landing um, at dawn and dusk when the light is really bad and it's really hard for anything to see obstacles in the way, like uh, tall towers with spinning blades on them. Um, well, a wind turbine in any place is probably going to knock down some birds, and that's you know that may just be a price we have to pay for green energy. But if you put one up in the middle of major stopover habitat, uh, it can really be destructive for these long-distance migrants who are already facing a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. And so describing all that, you know, you you just have to describe the basics of it um, so people understand. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. What I found really shocking was the, when you were talking to the people who were running the the wind development project in the, was it the western part of Ohio, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, the one that you sort of assumed was not going to have a lot of... um, not going to affect a lot of birds. And it turns out that, you know, they had been running surveys and they had been documenting the deaths of a lot of surprising species, like forest species, neotropical migrants, things you wouldn't necessarily expect to be hanging out or coming down in the middle of Ohio farmland. That was really, really surprising. So what what became of that? Is that still, are you still not sure of the numbers that they're picking up of the, you know, the kind of effect those places are having? Yeah, we still don't have the uh, the numbers from there. I mean, we, hmm. we went there initially because we thought this would be an example of, that we could point to to say, okay, you can you know you can put in a wind farm in this kind of area and it won't really have an impact. Um, but the energy company was um, 
they definitely did not want their data to get yeah, they out. They were very cagey, yeah. Yeah, and they, they actually took legal action to block the uh, state and federal agencies from huh. releasing the information. So, huh. so we still don't know. Uh, we yeah. know uh, some of the species of, you know, that something out in the middle of farm country in western Ohio was knocking down um, one or more golden-winged warblers, black-throated yeah. blue warblers, things like that. Uh, but we, we don't know what their numbers were. Yeah, that's crazy. And, uh, so, they, they don't want us to know. Yeah, so what are these birds, I, I mean, they're, I guess they're putting down in the middle of these these fields. It seems so strange, but... I guess if they see green, they're gonna. Is there is there any sort of, sort of border area where there's like shrubby areas where they can hang out, or is it just, you know, monoculture? <laughs> no, the um, the areas of these particular uh, wind farms that we're looking at, um, there's there's no good uh, stopover habitat for forest hmm. birds anywhere nearby, and so uh, I can only assume that it was variation in the uh, the height that the migrant yeah. birds were flying at. You know, we yeah, used to think okay. that, uh, you know, a songbird flying at night would be like a you know a jetliner would climb up to mm -hmm. a certain cruising <laughs> altitude and then go. But uh, there there have been papers published recently uh, with uh, transmitters on birds like thrushes showing that um, they're actually varying their altitude uh, quite a bit during the night. They may um, it may vary by hundreds of feet uh, as to huh. how high they're flying. That's interesting. So, yeah, that's that's a that's a problem and a variable that hasn't really been dealt with. Wow, I'm, I'm going to compare a season on the wind to a uh, a previous memoir of yours, uh, Kingbird Highway. And if if I had to describe Kingbird Highway in a single word, it would probably be uh, optimistic. And I I don't mean to apply that a season on the wind is pessimistic or cynical because it's definitely not, but there's a sort of anxiety in it, uh, you know, a concern about the welfare of birds and, and one that I share, by the way, and one that I think a lot of birders share. Uh, I suppose what I'm getting at is, um, do you recall the mood you were in when you were riding Kingbird Highway and how was it different than the mood you were in when you were riding a season on the wind? Well, when I was riding Kingbird Highway, I wrote the rough draft uh, when I was in my early 20s. And mm -hmm. uh, the rough draft was so terrible that, you know, fortunately <laughs> I just threw it in the box and left it there for years. But, um, but yeah, it was, um, I was a kid then. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, you know, definitely optimistic. Uh, everything was just wide open. Um, yeah. I, when I was riding uh, Season on the Wind, I, I feel like I know more about birds now than I did when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I'm taking a larger view. And I wouldn't say that I'm pessimistic, but I'm, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the fact that we all have to be more aware of what's going on uh, with birds and their environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it's very obvious, I think, to most birders that climate change is something that that is happening. We're seeing mm -hmm. it uh, right now. It's not like a future threat. It's something that's happening now. And so we need to deal with it, but we also have to be mindful of what we're doing um, and not just embrace every kind of uh, supposed green energy, mm -hmm. um, like wind farms, for example. If we're going to yeah. have wind farms out there, we have to think carefully about where they're placed so they don't uh, cause just a huge amount of damage to wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so here, here's, a, here's a more fun one. Uh, the Western Great Lakes are, you know, well known for their abundance of, you know, great migratory hotspots, uh, which, you know, McGee Marsh is probably the jewel in the crown. But there's also, you know, Point Pelee, Rondo and on, Ontario and Indiana Dunes and Tawas and Montrose. Um, how does McGee compare to all these places? <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, I uh, I have to be <laughs> I have to think about that. Yeah, there there is local pride. Uh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> there's account. that at stake. Yeah, all right. Um, look, taking the the larger view, um, I I think that McGee Marsh was the best place in this region for me to focus on for spring migration. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's one of the best for concentrations of warblers and other neotropical migrants mm-hmm. uh, in May. But it's also, we have really extensive marshes in this area. Um, along the lakeshore and around Sandusky Bay, there's a huge amount of waterfowl habitat. So, you know, there are places like on the, the shoreline in Chicago where you can see lots of warblers. But we've got these huge marshes that also attract these clouds of ducks. We've got great shorebird habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the spring raptor migration that's pretty good. There's a huge uh, resident and migratory population of bald eagles. Um, and then the uh, the migration of humans that happens here in May <laughs> yeah. is also impressive. Absolutely. So, um, um, I think I'm justified in saying that this was the best place I could have chosen for um, writing about the spring migration. Yeah. Um, other areas around the Great Lakes are better than McGee in fall, of course. Yeah. You you talk about the migration of people, and obviously, you know, the biggest week, the the, the festival that's going on there. Um, yeah, I've got to experience a couple times. It is it is really an extraordinary event, if for no other reason, because of the combination of birds and people, and um, you you really get to that in a season on the wind. There's a lot about the sort of community that is built up around the biggest week. What was it? A few years ago, you called. There's a T-shirt that called it Warbler Stock, uh, and that's you know, very much like what what it feels like. It's a lot of people coming together for a single purpose, that taking joy in being together as much as they're taking joy in the you know extraordinary migration. That must be extremely gratifying to you, to the people at Black Swamp Bird Observatory, to see that festival come into its own the way that it has and become such a celebration of migratory birds. It really is. I mean, part of the idea was to um, raise the awareness of just the value of this area. And Mm -hmm. so it's been really gratifying to see not only, you know, it's great to have people coming here from, it's up to like 50 other countries now. Um, And that, you know, that's really great. People from six continents have come here to to look at the birds. But um, I'm even happier about the fact that the local uh, community, the people who live in this area are very much aware of it. And I've mm-hmm. met dozens of people who have gotten into birding, uh, even in a fairly serious way, uh, just because they heard about what was going on out here and came out to check it out for themselves and ran into all these friendly birders and just the, yeah. the community out there, um, the way they'll just welcome people in. You wander out of the McGee Marsh boardwalk with no binoculars and no idea what you're doing, and somebody will go to you and say, hey, look, here's a Black Bernie in Warwick. Yeah. Um, and I just love that. 
Ken Kaufman is a bird everything doer. His new uh, his new book, Season on the Wind, A Season on the Wind is out now at your favorite book places, be they brick and mortar or online. If you're coming to the Biggest Week Festival, he will definitely be there, but I, I think your talk is already sold out. You'll be around. Ken, uh, congrats again. Thanks so much for chatting with me. This was a real pleasure. Sure, well, thanks, Nate. Always great to talk with you. Before I get started, I want to remind listeners who are going to be at the biggest week of American Birding of our celebration of the ABA's 50th anniversary featuring our special live recording of the American Birding podcast that is Monday night, May 6th at around 8. We will be welcoming special guests, Ariana Ardila Ardila, Jordan Rudder, and David Sibley. It is all free. Come one, come all, and see the American Birding Podcast live, the ABA at 50, and celebrate 50 years with us. There's cake. There's music. There's going to be a birders open mic. There's, there's good times among fun birders. Be a part of that. Once again, that's Monday, May 6th, 8 p.m. at Mommy Bay Lodge. In my typical social media ramblings the other day, I came across a tweet from Jen Kepler, a New York birder who stated that she was leading her first bird walk and that she was terrified and excited all at the same time. I hear you. I remember leading my very first bird walk, not all that long ago, and I can now say that having a few under my belt by this time, I have some thoughts about bird walks and why it's important to just go out and do it. I think the people who should be doing bird walks are probably not doing bird walks because they think that you have to be some sort of expert to do it. Uh, here's, here's the dirty secret. You don't, really. You know, bird walks are 85% enthusiasm, 10% actually spotting birds, and 5% knowing where the bathrooms are. And I, I really mean that. The thing about waiting to acquire some level of experience or expertise with regard to the birds you're looking for is that, one, you're probably much better about that than you think. And two, everyone makes mistakes, so don't worry about that too much. If you don't throw yourself in there, you'll, you'll never know. And I think some of these perceived barriers mean that we end up with birdwalk leaders that look like they've always looked, mainly older, whiter, and male. That is not to say that there aren't a ton of amazing leaders who fit that description because there absolutely are. Heck, I, I am two of those things, and every year I am closer to the remaining one. But it always makes me super happy to see more young women, young people, people of color, leading bird walks and acting as bird ambassadors. And if that describes you, don't let your perceived lack of experience hold you back. Volunteer for these positions. And if you are part of a bird club leadership looking for leaders, don't be afraid to ask people from diverse backgrounds to take on these roles and support them uh, when they need them. We are all in this together. I like to think of a bird walk leader as less of a tour guide pointing out important things and more like the host of a super great party. You've got two groups of guests from two different worlds and your job is to help them mingle. I, you know, hey man, can I introduce you to this black birding and warbler? I, I think you might have something in common. Uh, have you have you met Grey Catbird over here? kind of shy, but I think you guys are going to get along. If you have people on your walk who know the birds better than you, deputize them to help. These things work out better when everyone feels comfortable finding and pointing out birds together, even if they can't identify them yet. Even if you are not able to identify all birds, you can still find birds and see birds that other people won't see. And that, that helps the whole group. You want participants. 
not passengers. This is a concept that has served me well on pelagic trips where I've been a spotter, but it can be applied universally. It is always great when people are pointing out birds and kind of elbowing you in the side, say, hey, could, do, do you see that thing over there? Can you, can you help me identify it? You should also manage expectations appropriately. You know, don't talk up the super rare bird that you hope to find in case you don't see it, but sell it hard if you do. You're kind of telling a story here, and that is definitely a climax that'll keep people coming back. And communicate. Let people know who you are. Introduce yourself right off the bat. It's amazing how people sometimes forget that. You know, let people know what you're doing. I'm going to you know, walk over to that line of flowering trees and pitch to see if some warblers pop up. Uh, let's take this route because there's more light in the treetops and the bugs will be active. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Sometimes you don't know, and that's okay. And of course, you gotta have fun. If you're having fun, the people on your walk are having fun. If you don't see what you wanted to see, focus on what you did see. Most of the time, people don't really care nearly as much as you do. So get out there and lead those bird walks. It's fun to show people cool things. How often do you get to do that? And you're probably good enough to do it right now, and it's way easier than you think. And uh, last point, I, I wasn't kidding about those bathrooms. You will get that question a lot. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Help support this podcast and the many free resources that the ABA provides the birding community by joining the ABA today. Members get our print publications, discounts from our partners, and opportunities to travel with the ABA. You can get more information at aba.org slash join, or if you prefer to receive those publications online, check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout out to Mel Schiavelli of Arlington, Virginia, Steve Velasic of Gilbert, Arizona, Michael and Marie Cullis of Richmond, Illinois, Wesley Hoddett and his family, specifically Felix of Seattle, Washington, and Drew Cheney of Charlottesville, Virginia, and Jonah Losh of Taylors, South Carolina, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's a big fan of Ken's new book, but he's a little disappointed that it undercuts his own new work, A Season on the Wind Inside the World of Spring Migration, which is, of course, about building your own old-timey, spring-driven wind-up pocket watch. Technical production is from John Lowry. It's so funny. He has his own book, A Weasen on the Sind, a biography of a Catholic priest who was best known for breathing very heavily on his parishioners in the confession booth, which is a big deal for some reason. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They've been working together for some time on a memoir called A Sneezin' on the Wine, which is an in-depth look at Greg's tragic struggle with a Merlot allergy. And you can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Look for an upcoming proposal to the AOS Classification Committee proposing a squeezin' warblin as a new common name for warblin vireo. It's a regional name for the species. Um, where? Oh, yeah, up, upstate New York. No, no, it's an, it's an Albany expression. Questions, comments, and come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>